Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 144, Setting the Table. The last time we were all together, we heard about the death of John Zemiskis. The emperor was in Syria, marching around to show the newly formed Fatimid Caliphate that the Romans intended to protect their new conquests. But on his way home, he became ill and passed away just after reaching the vicinity of Constantinople. The emperor is dead. Long live the emperor. Who is the new Vasilevs? Why, it's Basil II, son of Romanus II, son of Constantine VII, the Porphyrogenitos, son of Leo VI, the Wise, son of Basil I. Basil II was an infant when his father died, and he'd spent his youth watching Nicephorus Phocas and then Zimiskis run the show while keeping him at a distance. The next two decades of our story will be taken up by civil wars. Basil will be challenged by the lieutenants of both Phocas and Zemiskis, men who had assumed for years that they would one day take charge of the empire. It's a showdown between the palace-based Macedonian dynasty and the families who'd led their armies for the past half-century. Before we throw ourselves into that conflict, we need to take a brief pause to reset the board. Thank you to all of you for your patience during this time. It will always be required during end-of-the-century periods, even a mini one like this, because of the amount of topics I need to research and synthesize. Today is an introductory episode to explain the format of the next few shows and a chance for me to point you to a couple of other podcasts I was featured on recently. But I also thought it was a good chance to talk about our sources and some of the problems that professional historians deal with when studying 10th century Byzantium. We will be greatly aided in this by an interview I conducted with Professor Anthony Koldelis. I was very excited when I learned that he was writing a narrative history covering this period. 
and I'm delighted to say that Streams of Gold, Rivers of Blood, is out now. It tells the story from 955, when Nicephorus took charge of the military, all the way through to the First Crusade. The book is brilliant, and I was extremely privileged to see an advanced copy which has been guiding us for the past 20 years of narrative, and will continue to do so for a long time to come. Because the book is so good and so relevant to the podcast, I asked Professor Caldellis a number of questions which touch on topics that we need to deal with separately. So I've decided to slice the interview up into its component parts so that you get maximum value from it and don't get overwhelmed with information. And that's why I'm giving you this introduction today, so that you know all about the book and the interview, and I won't need to explain them again when I suddenly throw to the interview in the middle of future episodes. At the end of this mini-series, I'll release the full interview as one episode for anyone who wants to hear it as it was recorded. Before I gush any more about the book, let Professor Caldellis tell you in his own words why he decided to write it. Yes, of course. So um, narrative history is not something that I had written before. Um, Obviously, when you're writing any kind of history or historical analysis, there are going to be bits of narrative that come up or that are necessary for the argument. But I've never written a... Uh, an extended um, narrative history uh, for its own sake. And I thought it would be an interesting challenge uh, for myself, um, in part because for many years I had been working on the sources from which we reconstruct history, so narrative sources, historiography, hagiography, and so on. And I had always been on the side of the argument which raises problems in, in using these sources. Uh, that they're not uh, always to be trusted, that they are engaged in various literary or philosophical or political projects that distort or invent the the, the events that they record. Um, it's very similar to, you know, in, in a way, trying to write a, a modern history, uh, given how how politicized opinion is and uh, all these different reports that circulate, and now we have fake news, right, as a, as a category. Um, and so imagine from uh, a thousand years ago if we only have a few of those voices. Uh, so how, how can we know that we can trust anybody? So it was a challenge for me to put myself on the other side of the equation and not just be the person who's saying, well, now, wait a minute, you can't necessarily use that source for factual reconstruction, um, what do I say to someone who challenges me and says, well, what can we say? And so that was one of the challenges that I set myself for this book. Um, Obviously, there's no formula that will uh, solve every, you know, every problem. But um, that's where how I wanted to challenge myself. Also, I thought that it would be fun. Um, and it was uh, incredibly fun. Um, and I wanted to try it on a smaller period before possibly uh, trying it out on, on a, um, a larger scale. But that's not something that I have begun to do. It's just something that I'm thinking about. Mm. 
Uh, and so why this particular period? Well, this is a period for which um, I had worked on the main sources. I had either translated them or written about some of them in the past. And so I already felt fairly comfortable with them. It's, um, it's a period where, for which we begin to have more um, ambitious literary texts, right? So you, we start with something like Leo the Deacon, and then we have Celos and Italiates and so on. Um, and this is before we get to the really monumental Byzantine histories, um, such as those of Honiates and Katakuzinos and Grigoras that you will get to eventually. Um, but it's, it's after a period where our main sources are mostly chronicles or brief lives and so forth. So the sources I had worked with um, also... I chose it because of, well, because of the nature of the events in question. We can talk about those later. Um, but also because we have fairly good non-Greek sources for the period, um, the most important uh, ones of which had been translated, um, like Yahya of Antioch, and some, um, who's a Christian writing in Arabic, but also some Muslim historians writing in Arabic at the same time. Um, the Armenian sources, a Georgian chronicle that's very important. And so it was, um, it, this was an asset. In other words, um, the foreign sources are crucial for correcting um, the Greek ones, which tend to be rather sort of insular. So there's not any evidence that the Greek historians, that the historians, the Byzantine historians writing in Greek, that they were using foreign sources or foreign traditions. Um, and to a considerable degree, the same is true vice versa uh, in, in the other direction. So these independent linguistic traditions could be used to correct each other uh, in a way. So that was very useful. Yeah. As you may have gathered from that clip, the book is like this podcast. It's a narrative of the period which keeps the story at the forefront but is always informing you about the problems with our sources and the context that they were written in. Uh, he's then able to guide you through what to trust and what to be suspicious of. I try not to mention sources too often on the podcast, as I think there are enough names and places flying around. But this process is, of course, key to the show. In order to demonstrate how he picks out the truth from the myths and legends I asked Professor Caldellis to use one of our historians as an example. And this is Leo the Deacon. Leo is our main source for the wars of Nicephorus and John. He was a student in Constantinople during Phocas's time on the throne, and then began his ecclesiastical career under Zimisces. He wouldn't rise to real prominence, though, until Basil II's reign. During this time, he accompanied the emperor on campaign in the Balkans, and the drama of that experience may have inspired him to write a military-focused history. Interestingly, given he wrote during Basil's reign, he is overwhelmingly positive about both Phocas and Zimisces. It suggests that he was able to speak to partisans of each in the capital and record their memories. 
It was Leo who largely guided us through the conquest of Crete, the fall of Cilicia, and the victory over the Rus at Dristra, to mention a few. But as he does with all sources for this period, Professor Caldellis examines how much we can trust what Leo says. Well, Leo the Deacon presents an interesting um, set of problems. This is one of our first rhetorically elaborated narrative histories that focuses on basically three reigns, but two main figures, right? So uh, Nicephorus Focus and John Smiskis. And is a major source, um, is one of the most cited sources in uh, 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 Byzantine scholarship. And I discovered something interesting about him, uh, about the way he wrote, which made me very distrustful of him. Um, and that was that wherever I could obtain independent information about a set of events um, or a particular event, take, for example, the conquest of Crete, uh, where we actually have some other sources. It seemed to me that he was working on the basis of very little factual information and elaborating it um, with all kinds of um, sort of ancillary literary um, uh, works, such as speeches and de descriptions, equatorical like ecphrases, but also, and this is where, what I thought was interesting, um, detailed descriptions of military maneuvers and like the, the technical minutia of warfare that normally don't appear in, in, in Byzantine histories or chronicles, but appear in his work to a considerable degree, like you know, how to establish a camp and what types of weapons and you know, what kind of unit and how it was moving and these kinds of things. And it, I realized eventually that, or at least I formed the suspicion that he was using um, sorry, military manuals to elaborate a small core of narrative fact. And this reversed the relationship that is normally assumed between him and the military manual. So the idea is that Leo the Deacon is used as a historical source to fact check the military manuals being written in the 10th century. Uh, you've probably discussed the ones associated with Nicephorus Focus and others. So the 10th century is a period when um, a lot of um, the 9th and 10th centuries, uh, many military manuals are written or rewritten. And it's, it seemed as if he was confirming them. But in fact, I think he was actually using them mm -hmm. to elaborate the little data that he had. Um, so that was a problem with Leo the Deacon, um, which is not to say that you know, his, his information is not worthless. I'm not saying that. Um, but when you take an event like the, the conquest of Crete, uh, 960-61, and you compare it to the other sources and you whittle it down, um, you realize there's actually not that much there. So he's an interesting example of someone who, you know, elaborates on the data that he has. So why did Leo feel the need to add potentially fictional details to his battle accounts? I asked if this was because he wanted his history to be viewed in the tradition of Herodotus as a great literary work. 
and without those military details, he would simply be left with a fairly dull chronicle of events. Yes, um, there is a considerable element of performativity, um, and I think the, the overall objective is to, I mean, as for him, as a literary artist, is to display the variety of literary genres that he's proficient in. And so you have passages like, like speeches, you have um, antiquarian digressions, he's talking about the origin of cities or of words, he, he has ekphrases, so these are detailed descriptions of people, like the you know, description of Tzimiskis or, um, uh, or of, of, of places, uh, also of uh, Zyatoslav, the description of him, which many artists have tried to reproduce, uh, right? And, and it's all just based on his description. He has passages of ethnography, like when he's talking about the pagan customs of the Rus and, uh, and so on. So it seems that he's trying to hit, like he has a checklist, right, of, of, of things that a proper literary historian needs to do, and he's checking them off. And I think that detailed military information is one of those things on his list, um, like, like, like a Thucydides or a, or a Polybius or something like that. To give you a more specific example of the kind of story that ends up in the histories but may be entirely false, I want to return to Romanus II's wife, Theophano. As you know, after he died, she married Nicephorus and was then accused of being in cahoots with Zimisces. It was Professor Caldellis who suggested that she was probably blameless, and I asked him to elaborate on that. I think, just for the benefit of our listeners, that she was she's blamed in various sources for the deaths of Constantine VII, her father-in-law, uh, Romanos II, her husband, um, Nicephorus' focus, also her second husband, in part by inviting in his, his allegedly inviting in his murderer, Tzimiskis, and making the, the murder possible. This poor woman, I mean, she, I think she was a very convenient scapegoat uh, for almost everybody involved. Um, Tzimiskis um, was the one who I think blamed her um, for the um, assassination of Nikiforos Fokas or, you know, anyway, had her exiled uh, very quickly, um, in part because, um, remember, so someone has to be blamed for some of these things, but also as the mother of Basel II, she was both the person who could be relied on to uphold the interests of her children, the heirs to the throne, most strongly, right, against the wishes of all of these generals who want to, you know, muscle their way onto the throne. Um, but also, later, when, you know, all the civil wars between Basel and the generals, um, there were intense propaganda uh, campaigns being waged at that time by both sides, and the scleros and focus um, sides in the later wars, so these are in the 70s and 80s, they produced a lot of propaganda, and some of it was very pro-focus, the emperor, and some of it was very anti-Macedonian dynasty, and I think that a lot of it um, was directed at, at, at Basel's mother, Theophano, 
Um, so there are accusations of, you know, her low birth, um, that she was working in a tavern, I think. Um, also these ideas that she was a poisoner and so forth. But I think it's entirely possible uh, that she did nothing whatsoever. And nevertheless, these accusations could still come up. So I don't think that there is, uh, you know, wherever there's smoke, there's fire, as a colleague of mine once put it, where there's smoke, there's usually a smoke making machine. Hmm. And OK, so that's one that's one one set of. But besides, poisoning is such an easy charge to make and impossible to to disprove or really prove. It's just basically creating suspicion about someone. Uh, but how could anybody have actually known that? Is secret things done that leave no evidence, really? I mean, those are um, that, that's just suspicion. Uh, I mean, just think of like Russian imperial history, right, where everybody is supposed to be poisoning everybody. Anybody who dies, you know, who isn't like very, 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 very old. And even some of them are supposed to have been poisoned. So, yeah, this kind of accusation acquires a life of its own. So that's just a taster from the interview and a reminder of the type of research that's necessary to dig out a likely narrative from sources which can appear detailed but are full of bias and agenda. Streams of Gold, Rivers of Blood is one of the most helpful books I've ever read for the show and I'm 100% confident that if you like this podcast, you will love the book. You'll be hearing plenty more from Professor Caldellis on the show, but the book is out now. Go buy it. As for the history of Byzantium, next time we'll be touring the conquered territory on the Eastern Front to see what's there and how it has affected the Roman state. But I know you've been starved of Byzantium-related podcasts for a while, so let me point you to a couple you might enjoy. First, remember that the Roman Healthcare series is available to buy at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. If you like part one, then check out parts two and three. That's over an hour combined of more Byzantine story goodness. Next, I recorded an interview with Scott Rank for the History Unplugged podcast. And that's a show that celebrates unsung historical heroes and discusses figures who shaped our world. I spoke to him for nearly an hour about Justinian, and I gave my five ways in which he shaped world history. It will be familiar to you, but hopefully I've put a fresh spin on things. And of course, go check out History Unplugged and see what other figures you might be interested to learn more about. Finally, I lent my voice to the History of Egypt podcast, as did several other history podcasters. It was for a three-part mini-series recounting tales from Bronze Age Syria. The episodes are available in exchange for a donation, and all the money made from this will go toward the International Rescue Committee Fund for aiding victims of the war in Syria. Please visit EgyptianHistoryPodcast.com to find out more. Those should keep you busy until I'm back with the next episode, which will be soon.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.